Bungacast, welcome all potentially 8 billion of you. Um, many of you screaming shitbags, but also many uh, humans very capable and creative, able to uh, produce and even change the very conditions uh, that make their life possible. So, um, you know, humans on balance, pretty, pretty good. What do you think, George? You're talking about normal people, though. You're not talking about podcasters. No, yeah, they, also, this is, this is the topic of the discussion. We are literally just screaming shitbags. We are screaming shitbags exclusively. You can't, dis- you can't say this is the conclusion and then let's have a discussion about it. This is what we need to decide over the course of debate and argumentation and all these other other kind of human activities. So, but yeah, humans in general, I'd say I'm a fan. Yeah. Good. Then I think that's a that's a, a wholesome starting point. Uh, today, we're actually very much on the topic and be talking about proposals for degrowth. Phil. Yeah, so this has been um this has been floating around for a while. And you can trace back some of the de I mean, some of this degrowth thing, you know, you can trace back to Club of Rome stuff in the 1970s. And obviously also um one of the criticisms of the degrowth stuff is that it has its roots um back in Thomas Malthus himself. So prior to the Industrial Revolution. Um, Tell us what the Club so- of Rome is. Yeah, the Club of Rome. So this was a kind of a, um, a one of the early kind of proto networks that developed in the 1970s alongside fora like um, the G7, um, among others. And it was uh, supported by the Ford Foundation. And it put together a vision of why diminishing resources and population explosion meant that there had to be restraints to what people could expect. Um, and that if there was to be, um, you know, if there was to be kind of, um, if there was to be any redistribution, it would have to come from a static um, pool of resources and wealth, essentially. So the Club of Rome kind of was um, emblazoned a certain vision of stasis, essentially economic stasis as a result of environmental limits and stresses. And so many, you know, all this discussion in the post-war period, at least, always circles back to the Club of Rome. So all that said, though, the point is, right, the reason we're talking about it is because it seems to be back in the air in a very particular way, and especially on the left. Um, And there's also been an influential, I mean, alongside these discussions of degrowth, which have been floating around kind of... um, green circles i suppose for a long time there's also an influential strain of eco-marxism that has been around for a while and it's associated principally with the work of um the late mike davis but especially john bellamy foster and though that uh, the vision of eco-marxism is broader than degrowth there is a renewed interest in degrowth specifically and i suppose the most some of the most prominent figures associated with this would be um jason hickel for those in social media uh kohei saito a japanese marxist who's just released a book on degrowth which has apparently sold tremendously well in japan and is making through in um, an english translation shortly and also andreas malm's work um and in particular his idea of the bolshevik 
model of war communism as the paradigm for the green transition to today. And listeners might recall we discussed um, both Malm's book and we also had Malm on as a guest in episode 168. So before we get more into the maybe some of the specific flexes around degrowth at the moment, I wondered how did you go? How do you guys understand degrowth, and when did you encounter the idea? Yeah, so I guess degrowth. Um, it sort of seems to me like there are you have the the less growth, and then the less importance of growth. Different sorts of ways of doing it. So you have kind of growth isn't worth it. We need to de. We need to kind of shrink our economies. You have like people saying that you know, and which is which is true that capitalism um produces irrationally so you know you could you could reorder production and decrease it and then you have a, a i guess it's a you know somewhat aligned this we put too much importance on growth instead of gdp let's have a kind of happiness index or or something like that and i guess first encountering this idea and it's probably changed a lot since then this would have been like the noughties uh late noughties probably you know very much associated with environmentalism and it wasn't so much of a thing then, but the Optimum Population Trust, which I think they at Attenborough's the the patron of, you know, that kind of environmental, like environmentalism that sees humans as like essentially like threats to 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 the the true, the nice, the the natural world. So yeah, I guess it's it's been around for a little while, but it definitely wasn't as as big a thing um, in the in the noughties as it is today. It didn't have the same sort of intellectual So when did you first encounter it? Yeah, like late noughties probably. I can't remember the, you know, it wasn't like some, it wasn't first looking on Chapman's Homer where it was like, oh, this thing, it's now imprinted on my mind the first time I ever saw it. Um, but yeah, probably around that that time. And I, I, yeah, I didn't, I don't really remember though. It's, um obviously read Malthus and, and all that sort of thing seriously again maybe in the yeah probably late noughties I wonder if it was partly mainstream do I remember um there's that scene in the first matrix where um agent Smith uh, played by Hugo Weaving is uh, tormenting or torturing uh, Keanu Reeves the hero in the first matrix movie oh, and here in all the movies but anyway and he says like um he says human being he says something like human beings are a virus um on the planet and that kind of idea of um humans as pestil as a pestilence essentially pestilential kind of or humans are the plague rather than um the plague on humans i think that was probably i think that was probably a moment in which it kind of packaged in that way and the success of the matrix movies it probably articulated something that was already you know in the air um, mm. and popularized and packaged up a particular view of humanity that had been bubbling away for a long time you know in various kinds of eco eco um and green and environmental ideas of humanity overburdening the planet and then it was finally kind of thrust forward in the fully in this kind of fully misanthropic form and popularized in that film. Yeah, I do remember going to the zoo and um, like there was this thing like the most cue, the most dangerous animal in the world. And there was a cage and you kind of like went around the corner and then you realized it was a mirror and like it was humans. It was you who is the most dangerous animal in the world. Um, and that was probably considerably earlier than, than my like other uh, interaction with it but yeah well, i well, guess it's um... harambe would no no doubt agree if he if you were still with us 
So uh, oh, yeah, I mean R.I.P. Harambe. Oh, but... such, such a lame, lame effort to be. <laughs> oh, but come on, we're, do, we're down with the kids. <laughs> um, no, but this was obviously a little, yeah, a little bit earlier. I think that yeah, you're right though. It, there, there was a point in which it became a more fully realized philosophy than just some kind of residual, more kind of environmentalist um, kind of common or garden anti-humanism. Um, yeah, I'm not yeah, sure so... I would say the Matrix movies were fully developed philosophy, but, um, you know, I don't know, maybe. I mean, obviously, maybe you use the Matrix in teaching. You're one of those cool philosopher tutors who would offer your students the red pill and the blue pill, George. I don't know. I mean, sitting on the table is a classic teaching move. Um, <laughs> and it's under, I was going to say it's underused. Maybe it's not underused anymore. Um, no, I was, ne- I was never a cool teacher. I was, if it's one minute late, it's late. You get zero marks and I'm not going to read it, sort of teacher, which is probably why I don't think many of my ex-students are, are particularly sad I'm not doing that anymore. But anyway, <laughs> Alex, I think you were going to contribute yeah. something a bit no, more. No, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you in terms of, you know, the sort of vague kind of nihilistic vibes that were in the air and transmitted into cultural product, um, an environment, kind of certain deep green ideas. And I remember... Um, kind of writing and, and thinking and arguing a lot about this around the late 2000s, especially, you know, before the global financial crisis, or maybe, you know, in that period shortly after before it, um, you know, it, it kind of came to consciousness that this meant things had significantly changed. Um, and so it was all around then, but I, I only encountered degrowth as a kind of more structured sort of idea and proposal in a more mainstream fashion relatively recently. I mean, I remember, I think we even on this podcast, we've remarked, you know, in trying to kind of, you know, periodize the present time, trying to kind of understand our place in, in recent history, that, you know, that, that the 2000s were, especially in, in Britain, I mean, you know, was very much uh, dominated by environmentalism and environmental claims at that time, or in, in the most, um, you know, kind of lightweight, um, superficial way possible. So it was all about, you know, kind of recycling, taking, you know, green bags, whatever stuff that the 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 same type of people today actually satirize and criticize as being completely superficial, right? Um, so back then it was all these kind of like little happy clappy initiatives um, for how to save the planet. And now those same people are um, basically treat those um, sort of practices as completely, um, you know, unsatisfactory or, or even, you know, explicitly as like capitalist ideology. And instead, we need to be degrowth. Um, so there's a certain kind of like radicalization there, as well as a mainstreaming at the same time. So yeah, a- anyway, as a way of trying to get to trying to a little bit like clean up my understanding of what degrowth was degrowth is now in terms of its proposal. I've tried to kind of break it down in terms of its different um, claims, and I mean, I, I haven't done an exhaustive, you know, kind of research of, of um, all degrowth claims. But just reading a couple of things where they argue for degrowth, um, I think we can categorize it a bit. And you know, guys, jump in obviously if um, uh, if you think something's missing or I, I miss, you know, mischaracterize something. But so, firstly, in, in environmental terms, I think there's a kind of strict approach in terms of degrowth is necessary to decarbonize, to reduce carbon emissions. And then there's a kind of wider um, environmental claim, which is really about saving the planet in in broad sense. It's about finite resources, about pollution, about extinction of species and indeed of humans. Um, So there's kind of, you know, a kind of narrow claim on environmental terms and a wider one. Socially, 
there's an anti-consumerist angle, basically the idea that there's too much stuff um, and that we need to degrow the economy because there's um, we're filling up the world with crap, which obviously has its environmental repercussions, but it's also a, a claim about you know human sociability that you know that people are going after. Um, consumer goods, but wanting SUVs and wanting you know little consumer baubles and whatever, um, instead of focusing on what matters. And there's there's a kind of second claim very closely related to that, also on the social terrain, which is I, I mean I, I classed it kind of here as decelerationist, but basically it says that you know we should focus on the things that matter. Degrowth would allow us to have more peace, more free time, more meaningful lives dedicated to meeting meaningful pursuits, rather than um, the um, infinite growth of where we're constantly pursuing more production, more consumer goods, more of everything. And instead we can, um, you know, make do with less and have a more um, meaningful, uh, connected social existence. Um, you know, it's a, effectively breaking away from the infernal machine that is capitalism. Um, you know, that at least that's how it's presented. There's a couple, set of like economic claims, um, which I think are, I, we've already hinted at, but one is uh, focused on well-being, which says, you know, GDP is a poor measure of well-being, which is well-trodden ground by now, um, you know, even kind of in the mainstream economic discussions, um, and that instead we should degrow because we can focus on, um, you know, welfare effectively, on well-being, on the goods that are essential or mo most important and not um, pursue ever-expanding growth. And then Following on from that, there's a, a, a claim, I think, which is basically redistribution is more important than production. We can stop production. We can stop producing ever producing ever more, um, going out, stop going after growth and instead effectively settle accounts. So if we redistribute the present, we redistribute all the wealth that there is now, um, we'll be far better off. Um, and that obviously has a claim at a level of the nation state. So there can be redistribution to a kind of median level within the nation state or globally even. Um, and that, you know, the, certainly the left wing degrowth argument is very much premised on that. Um, stop growth and have equality instead. Um, and then there's some philosophical claims, which is basically, one is, is basically the cancer metaphor that basically... It, Eternal growth is impossible. It logically makes no sense. The logic of ever continuing growth is the logic of cancer. It's a metastasizing society, and therefore um, something which is, you know, evil, damaging, um, impossible, etc. Um, and then associated with that is the general kind of apocalyptic Malthusianism, which we've already kind of referenced, um, that the world is going to completely burn up it you know there's limits to growth it's impossible to continue um and infinitely expanding and this is at a kind of a level of abstraction beyond just the kind of specific environmental or economic claims now okay so th those are like four cat four categories environmental social economic and philosophical notably i haven't mentioned political and i think partly because degrowth doesn't seem to have a very strong political claim which might be a problem um what is its understanding of politics maybe that growth you know, empowers the already powerful, right? That it's capitalists who want growth because they make more money off of it and it's not good for us, but that perpetuates the power system that exists. At most, I think that's its political claim. Ultimately, in the absence of, of any real politics, it defaults to emergency politics. It defaults to basically um, anything goes because, you know, um, we have to get off the growth train immediately for all these environmental reasons as well as the social um, and economic ones and therefore um you know it needs to um avail itself of claims about emergency and therefore everything is possible in or everything is permitted um in pursuit of of you know pulling the handbrake there mm -hmm.
So anyway, I think that that's kind of my uh, kind of understanding of what deep growth claims are. I don't know if you guys have anything to add or subtract even. Yeah, just um, maybe to jump in on the the question of the political aspects, because I think that that was you know really helpful, pretty uh, useful. It seems like the the sort of pol- political claims that degrowth makes are, in in one sense, like populist or super super populist, because it's a it's something which is in the interest of all people, um, in the in one sense, like as you said, that kind of emergency politics and environmental, like uh, you know, doom or or serious change required that kind of logic of like you know this this is the mobilizing tactic of saying well we need to we need to do something serious otherwise we're all we're all fucked basically so i think there is something there that the <clears throat> you know the, the, the i guess the, the more you get into it the questions of who like what gets degrown first and and who's like who benefits who loses those are not part of the the, the starting point generally of of degrowth to the unless you kind of bring in the additional claim that climate change or climate is a class issue or or like it, it disproportionately affects working people first which i think some some people um do tend to do but another thing just that that struck me as you were going through that <clears throat> is the term itself degrowth it's not something you encounter normally in like day-to-day life you don't say like i'm going to go and degrow my hair when you're going to have a haircut or like i need to de degrow my my <laughs> waistline after christmas because i've overindulged so i think there is something that it's like why not just say shrink or like decline or like um i don't know why why is there that's this slightly unusual somewhat technical sounding word there must be some sort of reason for it because it's and i tend to think is is it hiding something or is it like um suggesting a sort of like something i don't know they want to get away from um i mean you know recession and depression is a form of degrowth right <laughs> a shrinking economy is a degrowth thing so you know it's i presume it's a very kind of explicit desire to get away from the negative connotations and rather to reframe you know to reframe those things as um potentially positive or to suggest I, I, that there's to suggest that there could be a positive aspect to kind of you know going backwards or um shrinking economically i guess well, and I think the reason they avoid that, I mean, is that they, there's an additional claim, at least the more kind of sophisticated cases for degrowth is that they say, you know, it's not just a recession, right? Because that everyone gets poor. We don't want to, we don't necessarily want a recession, though. <laughs> there's enough evidence out there of degrowthers actually saying that, you know, this is that when recessions come, it is a good thing, but that it's, you know, a rationalization of production. So, you know, we focus on the important things and we don't produce all this, you know, consumer crap that you know um the all, all, all the yeah, kind of sweeties that and that's, people are addicted to mm, and that's kind of good right to the extent that you're like the like recession is something which you know nobody wants and you can't control it and it's the gods of the markets have been angered but at least degrowth is like well this economic course that we're taking is is the product of like collective decision making and we can reflect on it and choose where we want to go so that is you know, maybe there there is something positive about that, saying like we can choose growth, we can choose degrowth, we can choose stasis. Um, whereas recessions and depressions are generally things which are done to like political units because you know, I don't think many people are in favor of recession for recession's sake, but probably are a few, but I don't I don't know any. Were you ever would either of you have ever said you were sympathetic to degrowth? I get a feeling Alex probably was. That was um, a bit like, have you? Are you now, or have you ever been a member of a party a that advocated degrowth? Yes. Have you? Yeah. 
I, I, certainly not in, in explicit terms. I mean, unless maybe as a kind of teenager where, you know, kind of, yeah, kind of environmentalist and, you know, but it, it was the kind of, it was very, very much of a piece of, of, of the times, you know, where it was just that kind of a certain kind of nihilism, right. And a kind of nihilism dressed up as radicalism, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I think for teenagers, me, are, teenagers yeah. are idiot and shouldn't be listened to. So. I think um, for me, I remember reading No Logo and thinking, yeah, this is pretty good. Um, all these logos, this is why like consumer society feels alienating. But then <clears throat> after reading something which was a bit more, uh, I don't know, which tried to put put it into a bit more context, I don't think it it never really stuck. I mean, I should say, you know, from a from a personal point of view, I don't think I've, I would ever be an environmentalist because as much as I do like nature and particularly like going for walks, I do suffer from hay fever. So I do know at a very bodily level that <laughs> nature is and nature. Yeah. yeah it's nature red in tooth and claw. Yeah. It's me versus nature. And and I I know that. And so I'm not gonna be, <clears throat> you know, making my peace with with the plants or the tree, the tree pollen for me particularly. So I, you know, I've got their number, I guess. I'm 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 <laughs> not gonna be easily swayed into into degrowth um because and you know they 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 get their own back on me these these trees i suppose i mean our you know i guess our um skepticism what about you have... you did you didn't um you didn't answer your own question yeah because i sit on the commission and i ask people whether or not they ever supported degrowth i don't okay. actually have to account for my own view but the, no the, ha the house un sorry i was never um no i can't i mean even in my kind of, um, even in my anti-globo kind of anarchoid, anarchoid, anarchistic days of uh, the late nineties, I was never especially, um, you know, deep green stuff. It had a kind of, it was so wacky. It was kind of intriguing in its, um, in its sheer kind of um, extremism. Um, but it never, you know, I never felt drawn to it as something that was um, particularly desirable or practicable. So can, I was can never, I I'd yeah. never count myself as a degrowther. Can I just make a quick comment about like the aesthetics of of this and and kind of associated ideas? Because I think it is kind of important, right? Um, because degrowth does um, touch on and it's like very much evoked in by degrowth advocates a certain sense of exhaustion, a kind of like I don't, you know, I've had enough of this over fast accelerated world where there's just too much stuff right the sense of um exhaustion and, and alienation right um and it's interesting that uh, the, that despite that you know the the aesthetic is a little bit different because the 90s stuff at, at its you know fringes was pretty you know kind of tree hugging and hippie and all that kind of thing and i never liked that stuff i the hippie kind of aesthetic um never appealed to me whatsoever and it's but nowadays you know that that stuff is really kind of not foregrounded in degrowth advocates in part because of its mainstreaming i suppose but um you know other than kind of kind of the most more ditzy ends of this where it's like well we can focus on the things that are important and you know spend time with our families and um you know have woodblock toys instead of kind of shiny plastic things instead um you know the kind of serious degrowth advocates there isn't very much um affection for nature i think there right it's more of a an emergency mm -hmm. insistence that society can't go on like this. Um, not like, yeah, so, I think that's you know, actually a, 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 an so important like the, point. And so the image that's there in their heads, I mean, kind of 
you know, reading, reading into it um, would be that like, you know, life is kind of, you know, wholesome, you know, based around your neighborhoods and communities. It's egalitarian, peaceful, healthy. Um, there's time to dedicate to meaningful things. Um, and so it's an image which is actually fairly, um, fairly appealing. I mean, one piece that, uh, that we've linked to in the show notes about degrowth makes this point, you know, like, well, if you're, if you're telling me like, you know, we can have uh, b- better public services and, um, you know, better transport, which is less polluting and whatever, like, yeah, that all sounds good. Right. Um, so there's, there's an element of the degrowth claim, which seem, you know, kind of most people would get on board with. Right? I don't think that powers it though. It's not the, I think you're right that the, you know, it's not even really a reverence for, you know, I don't know, like, um, the kind of uh, natural landscapes you might find in, I don't know, you know, kind of uh, Baroque or Romantic paintings or something, you know, it isn't really that. What really the real kind of the, it's motivating force is that sense of um, either disgust or disdain for, you know, the kind of the crudity and the stupidity of mass society um and also the you know that sense of um that society is out of control it's kind yeah. of proliferating particularly industrial modern society technologically you know socially its instability and all of this stuff it very much speaks to what it really resonates with is the is that sense of powerlessness and alienation in modern industrialized urban society I yeah. mean, it's mm, re- kind yeah. of it's revulsion against that more, I think, than it is kind of a positive embrace of some, you know, romantic idyll. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's not very romantic. Motivated yeah. people in the past. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, I mean, I, I think that's fair. I think that would be fair to say. Um, we've I mean, we've spoken to be specific about some of this kind of um, or a bit more specific about it. We have discussed the criticisms of degrowth in a more recent episode. Uh, Miss Branko Milanovic on as a guest. This was episode uh, 286. And he made the case for paleo leftism there. And one of the ways in which he differentiated it was that um, in opposition to degrowth, that what he called paleo leftism, which is to say a kind of a left um, which uh, would be, you know, kind of uh, going back so far in the past that it would have very little to do with the contemporary left. So paleo in that sense, it would revolve, involve robust support for economic growth. And he made this the case, less the case for the developed world, so much as if the left supports improving the standard of living um, for the majority of humanity, uh, then there is no way to have, to do that without enormous growth. Uh, to redress not only inequality, but also the dire poverty that afflicts the majority of the world's people still. And I think it's important to stress, I mean, we didn't get into the detail of this, but the point being, you know, that you wouldn't, you can't really, unlike the claims of degrowthers, you would never be able to alleviate the plight of the very poor in the world um, simply through redistribution. So putting to one side whether or not redistribution on that scale would be desirable um, or practicable in the sense of the kinds of, you know, um, social and political structures you would need to achieve it at a global level, putting that to one side, you know, the idea that you could kind of helicopter money in to um, shanty towns, you know, in Lagos or Cairo or, um, you know, uh, Delhi or Lahore or whatever, um, or even, you know, kind of rural villages in Africa, you could just kind of drop money on them well, I think and expect that there would the be latter. kind of, that that would... 
yeah, that you would read that that would be effective redistribution, or that would be effective. Um, that would be meaningfully kind of uh, redistrib redistribution that would expand the prospects for people. You know, that is simply it simply wouldn't work, right? You would need yeah. um, sanitation, you would need roads, you would need clinics, you would need, um, you know, kind of the availability of um all sorts of kind of very basic consumer goods let alone you know kind of um perhaps more, more consumer goods um you would need such a kind of transformation in material living circumstances that you would need growth right the kind of the build the sheer kind of amount of stuff that would need to be built to improve lives for people living there that can't be done just by putting money in their pocket Right. And so to that extent, right, there is it seems to me like the argument for redistribution at the global level as a solution is, you know, it simply doesn't work. There is no way of avoiding growth um, if you want to improve the plight of the material standard of living of the majority of the world's people. Yeah. And I, I mean, their response is that, no, OK, they're allowed to grow then, you know, the poorest are allowed to grow. Um, but the, yeah, which I you know, the wealthiest, stand, the wealthiest I think is Jacob's point. I think that's Jason Hickel's argument. Yeah. 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 So there would be kind of a rebalancing in developed economies um, away from GDP expansion, which would allow, you know, kind of allow the um, expansion, economic expansion in the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, the one of the, the problems with um, <clears throat> no economic expansion in the more developed parts of the world is we just I, I just don't think we're we're at the we're at the right level yet if if you can even get to a level where you're like okay this is fine now i think there's still you know you you go some places in in britain at least and you're like this is a very impressive you know kind of technological or like the transport works here and all of this and then you go to other places and no it's not the same it's, wouldn't it wouldn't really, the degrowth or really that that just needs to be redistributed i mean the redistribution within britain would see to it that you know the kind of most rundown parts of whatever Wolverhampton or Sunderland would be, um, you know, much leveled up, and you'd withdraw a lot of money from London, which a lot of which is spent on luxurious consumption for the very few. So I mean, you know, I, I think yeah, the but I suppose the point is it kind of it falls to the same problem, right? Because it's not just a matter of like um, you know giving people more money in rundown areas, the sheer kind of level of neglect and decay. Um, and the need to improve, you know, the material standard of living in terms of road, you know, again, kind of basic infrastructure and capacity that would require growth. Now, maybe, you know, you could make the case. I mean, and obviously this is all kind of at very kind of rarefied levels, but you could make the case that, well, that would just be rebalancing, you know, at the national kind of aggregate level. But still, it would be effectively growth. It would be expand. It wouldn't just be patching things up. You would need if you want to improve. Um, the very kind of rundown areas of rich countries, it needs growth in the sense of new, you know, things built out with new technologies, inevitably um, new kind of um, new material things. No, I was going to say also somebody living in in London, like I also want more growth in London as well. So I'm just speaking on behalf of my my interest as a uh, metropolitan dweller in uh, yeah our nation's capital. Well, I, I think a metropolitan the, the... podcaster. <laughs> this gets to um, 
I think what what uh, a lot of the degrowth argument misses out, which is that it presumes a lot of production, you know, so that ideal, right, that the image in their minds oh, that I kind of painted earlier, but it's, you know, a kind of nice neighborhood with green trees, everyone can walk around, um, you can walk from place to place, there's shopkeepers, you have a sense of community, <laughs> you, um, you know, there's good public services, clean air, clean water, uh, people have spare time to dedicate to caring for each other and for pursuing um, arts and crafts and, you know, uh, self-development and whatever. Um, all sounds very nice, but that all presumes a, a huge amount of production to allow that you know, even people to have that kind of free time, let alone the kind of material uh, goods to support that. And that kind of gets missed out in the degrowth argument, because it's like, okay, but who is producing that? And and just simply at a quantitative level, there is a lot of stuff that needs to be produced for that kind of life to be made possible. Um, so, you know, the, yeah, there's, even a mean... degrowth, there's a degrowth meme where it's like that image, which I just painted. And then another one of like horrible, um, you know, smokestack factories, industrial production slums um, and all the shanty towns and all the rest of it. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, actually you kind of it's not a choice between an either and an or, but they've they've they kind of form a unity. Now, you can have the one version you know, of without the slums and whatever. Right. And everyone collectively contributing to to build the world and, and reaping the benefits from that. Okay, that would be a, a, a traditional argument for we socialism. We have that yet. Yeah, we know that, exactly. Yeah. That would be a traditional argument for for socialism. Um, versus, you know, whereas the degrowth one assumes that you can just have one without the other, um, which is uh, so. Which is a real this, blind I spot. mean, there's yeah. So, kind of what you just said, Alex, it kind of parallels the discussion that we had with Alex Gorovich about UBI, where part of the reason that it has a particular allure at the moment is just how you know how many layers of the population in the west are removed from material production as a result of industrialization being exported to east asia and i wonder if there's a you know there's a parallel kind of um, aspect to the current appeal of the growth as well that it partly um you know it partly kind of simply um it kind of a gloss or reframes what is in fact happened in developed countries. But we'll talk about the specifics of degrowth um, uh, or why degrowth has kind of emerged now bar quickly to um, because this kind of connects to what you were just saying, Alex, as the um, as the uh, kind of appeal of degrowth, because my home, my, well, not my hometown, but the place where I live at the moment, Canterbury, has a... Um, is uh, part of a national experiment, shall we say, that has put it alongside the city of Oxford into national headlines on the on this idea of what's called a 15-minute city. And it's exactly along the lines that you suggest, Alex. It's trying to kind of um, decentralize the city um, by way of kind of and services um, available within a 15-minute walk. So to encourage people to cycle or to walk rather than to use cars to um, get around the city and thereby to um, and thereby to kind of, um, well, control kind of traffic, traffic growth to curb the growth of traffic, choking up the roads, um, fumes and so on. But also to have this um, more kind of um, ease of living, I suppose, would be the way it would be, um, you know, the way it would be offered. And there's a few, I suppose, this isn't, you know, this is not to say it's the last word on it, but it's worth, I think, um, drawing out the implications of how this manifests itself in practice, right? So 
it seems as far as I can tell, at least in Canterbury, it seems that it's been something which is kind of independent of at the moment it's uh the gov- it's a local government that's um, that's run by the Tories, the local council, but it seems to be independent. So it's not, you know, it's something which isn't kind of run by a Labour council or a Green council, but under a Tory council. But it really seems to have come from um, essentially the kind of municipal bureaucracy. At the same time, though, right, as they want to kind of um, as they want to do this, the construction of the 15 minute city requires carving up the existing city into these nominal zones. And crossing over from one zone into another with a car would be um, fined past a certain level, right? So they would use kind of image recognition on number plates in order to identify who had violated a certain number of times in which they used their car to go outside of out of their appropriate zones. Whereas other kinds of vehicles, such as motorbikes or scooters or whatever, wouldn't fall to, um, you know, wouldn't be fined. And apparently in Oxford, there'll be a, there's the similar kind of idea except it won't be um it won't be um fine but you apparently would need a permission from the local council and every household would have a permission to cross into one zone or another using a vehicle um so many times a year the number touted is 100 now there's a few things to say about it right um the first is right that it's deeply at least speaking in canterbury it's deeply unpopular um, as far as I can tell, you know, based on, I mean, there's been no poll that I know of, but as far as I can tell from all the kind of um, chatter and talk, it's deeply unpopular. The other element of it is this idea of the 15 minute city is obviously that it, the two places where it's being kind of trialed, which is Oxford and Canterbury, are both, um, you know, kind of academic heavy Um cities in the southeast on the outskirts of london that are com- within the commuter belt for london um and they're both you know kind of cities that are um unequal um and suffer from all sorts of uh, problems associated in the southeast in terms of lack of access to infrastructure being um you know suffering from inflated property prices the other also is the coercion Right. So, you know, the way in which it's being enforced effectively is through, um, you know, the disciplining mechanisms of fining, which are and permission slips, which would be available to the local council. And finally, the other element that I'd say is that that's kind of it seems to me, you know, I mean, I can't see it as any other way, but that this kind of 15 minute city plan, it could only be drawn up by people who don't have kids or aren't particular, you know, are very well to do. Because the idea, you know, that you, given everything that's involved in kind of sh- shuttling kids back and forth from school, after school clubs, staying over with, mm. and, you know, and this is, you know, even kind of car, even assuming you're carpooling kind of, you know, a bunch of kids and their friends or whatever, it just seems to me so remote and impracticable from what people you know kind of with families do in any kind of day-to-day situation that it's so bizarre and irrational at some basic level that you know that has to be reckoned with anyway so i mean that you know this is i thought this was an interesting point to raise because it ties into what you said alex and like i say canterbury is one of the epicenters of it in the uk so given it's where i live i thought it would be worth worth raising and i imagine listeners you know will be familiar might even have some stories of their own to share on um similar kind of um developments by at the municipal level around the world too so please do feed them in if you do Um, Um, i'm all for i'm all for using the podcast to to mobilize 
uh, people in your local area to fight against the 15 minute city but could i just ask a, a question of clarification so is this is the idea then you have all these 15 minute zones and then it's like you're within that 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 zone <laughs> you have everything within 15 minutes and if you need to travel further than that you need um you need a pass you need to kind of go yeah so you'll need a pass the border in guards and that sort of I thing if, yeah so it won't be the you know the borders of these zones have been because they'll be policed by cameras rather than by by um you know, rather than by kind of uh, board, so to speak. Yes, well, but indeed, right? So, I mean, you know, like um, the point is that it's, a you know, the zone, the zoning would be real, right? So in principle, I guess it could be enforced more stringently, you know, if um, if the cameras proved insufficient. The pass system is what's been touted for Oxford, whereas in Canterbury, what's been touted is the idea that you're, you know, you'd get a fine slapped on you through, um, because your license, the car, license plate on your car would be picked up by, by camera the irony is that if you're if you're uh if you're an american living in a big american city um both canterbury and oxford would seem already the ideal of the 15 minute city because they're cute and small and you can walk places and so on so um i think it, it very much depends on what um you know kind of what perspective you have um i can imagine you know by the standards of american urbanism that that might sound appealing to to certain people um but I, no i think you're you're completely right in, you make like, you make a the, point you make a point. I mean, so, you know, like national patterns of urbanism are obvious, you know, I mean, there's enormous variety, even in, you know, the kind of the industrialized world alone kind of further afield. Um, so, I mean, I suppose that's worth, you know, that's worth noting. But, you know, I suppose I wanted to bring it in because it concretizes some of these debates, right, about yeah. what is actually yeah. needed to make some of these schemes work, right? And also, do they have buy-in? Because um, at least as far as I can tell in, you know, my local municipality, um, it really doesn't. However, you know, that even if the Tories lose the next kind of um, set of council elections as a result of this, um, the opposition, Labour and the Greens and the Lib Dems would also, you know, in all likelihood support either this system or something similar. So there is no kind of, you know, there is no party political opposition um, that would come in. But anyway, let's it move seems, on. No, no, so, no. Just, just to, just to, because I, I think it's an, um, a kind of revealing example. Um, and it seems to me like, yeah, I mean, you don't want to be too conspiratorial, um, but it does seem like almost a sort of stepping stone towards climate lockdowns or towards a much more, like it's an, it's an intermediate step to much more coercive and strict control of, of, of population movement. And you could see, you know, this potentially being rolled out if, if successful in either of these two two kind of test cases something along these lines like restricting or, or more heavily penalizing people for um for travel and you know that's that sort of thing it, you, yeah as, as i said you don't want to be too conspiratorial but it does seem quite um quite a, a, a technologically advanced kind of complicated way to to do something which is fairly simple which is control people's you know I mean, movement. Th this is the real so techno-feudalism. <laughs> so, well, um, so one final point before we move on, 
which is, I think, you know, it is hard to imagine that this would be kind of trial door contemplated um, without lockdown having happened. And certainly it is feeding in, you know, as far as I can tell, um, reading, you know, in the kind of local press, reading the comments beneath. Um, and it's got, you know, you can imagine there isn't generally a lot of comment on um, in the local press on stuff which the council, you know, on kind of reports of council initiatives. And this is just huge, sprawling kind of comment threads on this. Um, but as you can imagine, it feeds into all sorts of um, kind of uh, WEF and WEF adjacent conspiracy theories about what's going on. But maybe, I mean, maybe we'll, you know, we might end up coming back to this um, at a different point um, in, the, you know, in a different context. Anyway, so uh, that was kind of a, a secure circuitous route to the question I wanted to ask, which is why now? Um, why is the rage why is there a rage for degrowth now specifically? We've touched upon some possible um, you know, explanations, but it's worth drawing them out. Yeah, I think one of the, the things that we kind of touched on a little bit already or referred to um, or talked about when um, we had that discussion with Alex Gorovich that you, you mentioned was I think a lot of people do have the correct um intuition that their job is essentially like the bullshit or not productive or or like not useful um i may you know uh, and so they sort of like yeah so they think well do we really need this rat race do we this this you know feeling that i think it's people have had for um, a, a long time like um in in second world war like post second world war consumer capitalism that, that there are some things which are just not not needed. I think that the problem is, or what degrowth kind of degrowthism does, is is project that from one's own feeling, perhaps of like irrational labour, to saying, well, you know, er other people in society shouldn't have things to consume or don't need X, Y, Z. So I think there is something about this this increasing um, kind of bullshitization of of jobs that that probably plays into it yeah. a little bit. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, I think on a kind of broader timescale, the appeal of it now is, as I've said, I think before on other episodes, that it's an ideological reflection of the reality of um, of low growth. Um, you know, so if we had fast growth, I'm not sure if degrowth would be that in because some of the benefits of it would be visible and it would be shaking things up politically also much more. Um, so in the context of you know, long-term stagnation um, of very low growth, especially in the, over the more recent period, that you know this gives birth to um, to to uh, to degrowth ideas, a kind of a self-reinforcing tendency, and then kind of at a, at, a, at a kind of more immediate level, I guess, and looking at it more politically, I guess you have you know on the left, you had the transition away from. Um, kind of anti-global, very environmental sort of thought in the 2000s, as we already mentioned, towards the economy, right? And so questions of distribution came back in in the early 2000s. Um, it reached its peak perhaps in the in kind of around 2015, 16, 17. And then with the defeat of left populism, there's a just a general sense of exhaustion. And so maybe there's a turning back to this question of degrowth. To go into, to go into maybe even a little bit more deeply, environmentalism i think as a whole and i mean this i don't I, you know just so i'm not misunderstood because i i know i had lots of kind of comments on this um on twitter and elsewhere about you know why are why is bunga castle anti-environmental why are you you know 
I mean, I'm entirely favor of a kind of rational planning of the economy, which would mean less pollution and um, all the rest of it, right? Um, as as well as very obviously um, reducing carbon emissions. Um, but the the kind of in ecological thought, let's put it that way, is premised on a kind of sense of diminished subjectivity that you know humans are um, just uh, at the most able to inflict kind of damage on the planet, but no real sense of humans collectively taking charge of um, of the future and the conditions of life. Um, and it, the the kind of there's a kind of um, short term kind of diminished subjectivity, you know, because you know we don't have Bernie and uh, Corbyn to rally around anymore. There's less of a sense of a of any of a kind of collective agency that there was at that point, and that has now led to kind of falling back into the kind of environmental thought into and indeed into degrowth. One final element I think of of its appeal now, um, I think there is a. Um, correlation, a sort of, uh, you know, syntony between um, two different phenomena. One is uh, that of, you know, the the great resignation um, of dropping out, something that we've discussed plenty on this podcast before, um, which for a lot of workers, um, especially young workers and precarious workers, there's a sense of like exhaustion, right? Um, you know, you're having to, to work three jobs just to kind of uh, break even and so on. And, and you just feel kind of like, um, you know, there's not so much point in in running anymore, and so there's this kind of phenomenon of dropping out. And I think degrowth, to a certain extent, is a is a sort of ideological reflection at a much grander scale. You know, in talking about the kind of trajectory of the global economy and the planet, um, projection onto that level of that feeling of kind of like actually, why don't we just slow down and drop out? Um, because there's nothing to be gained from staying on this treadmill. And I think that's that's the appeal. And I think that is something that has to be taken seriously, that feeling of alienation, but obviously needs a much better response than um, dropping out of the labor market and, um, you know, pursuing ideas of of degrowth. Yeah, no, I think I think both of those are really good points. Like the <clears throat> it's an ideology of capitalism in, in retreat from production or low growth capitalism. And there probably is an added bit of the the, the kind of the failure of left populism and that you know that question of of did the people let the the populace down sort of thing so do you turn against the people but i guess my question is if if this is right alex do you see then these are like these are factors which presumably are going to like stay the same or increase so should we sorry i don't want to put it this way but should we expect a growth in degrowthism i mean unfortunately i think yes because you know on the left as i say that the kind of motors for that sort of thinking um haven't um, gone away and then kind of pulling it out more politically it is obviously very convenient to those who hold economic and political power because if you don't have people clamoring for growth anymore or if you have uh, a, a significant section of society which is saying well actually we, we don't need growth we want degrowth um, you're absolved of the responsibility for not delivering on growth um, and so there's you know declining living standards and then but, you know, the declining living standards will persist with um, all sorts of forms of like hyper consumerism and, you know, digital uh, engagement and apps and all the rest of it, which perpetuates the feeling that the world's going too fast and there's too much consumerism and so on, um, which allows then uh, the political response from those who hold power to say, um, basically, yeah, let's just, if you're maybe a little bit more progressive leaning, a politician is more progressive leaning, let's just do a little bit of kind of uh, some redistributive uh, small little social policies um, while 
persisting with a low growth economy. And then if it's on the right, of course, then it can be far more um, Malthusian, more in much more explicit fashion of just basically saying, um, no, we don't have enough growth. So we have to close all the borders, no, have no more immigrants try to keep society in place as it is now. Um, and, you know, effectively, you know, kind of traditional, uh, traditional sort of conservative uh, reactionary even argument. And so in that regard, yeah, I think there's I think that's why degrowth needs to be argued against very um, forthrightly, but also to try to understand what gives birth to it, at least amongst those people who advocated on the left. I mean, this kind of goes to make things even more kind of uh, on point. You know, after the Nord Stream pipeline was blown up in the Baltic, there was the joke um, on left Twitter that the attack must have been inspired by um, Malm, Andreas Malm's more recent book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And it was a good, I mean, I suppose the reason, you know, the reason it was funny was because, well, you know, here you had a pipeline being blown up, but rather... Um, Rather than the work of, um, you know, kind of eco eco commie activists or something like that, it was done by, um, you know, a highly tooled ad state outfit, most likely the US. It seems increasingly based on um, uh, the evidence that has kind of uh, filtered through since. Um, but not, you know, irrespective of who did it. Um, the point is, it wasn't done by eco activists, but by, you know, serious military operation. Um, and I guess that ties into this question. If Malm, you know, if they were doing, if this, you know, whoever blew it up, if they were doing Malm's work for him, essentially, um, how does, how does, how do ideas of degrowth intersect with the current political and geopolitical situation? Yeah, I mean, did, I don't know if anybody on Twitter uh, made made the observation that it could, it could have been the marketing department for for that book um, because it was a very even I Averso, I'm, I'm not, Averso that well organized. I maybe. I mean, I don't. I didn't. Yeah, I'm not on Twitter, but I, even I had and saw some if, of the if um, any publishers that are organized. That's that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's where we should. <laughs> Look, look to publish um they, they'll go the extra mile i mean impressive but no i mean to answer the question i think the the i guess the, as you were kind of asking that question something which did come to mind is there is an extent to which like i guess degrowth is quite um it's quite gl gl globalist if that's the right way to put it. it might not be but like the 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 question like notwithstanding that distinction maybe between the developing and the developed world and you know you may be more in favor of more growth in the developing world it does seem to say like any any country's economic growth and pollution and all these things are uh, and energy use is, is kind of in my interest or i have a legitimate um claim to to kind of not intervene necessarily but maybe it's a few steps towards uh, or a few steps away from um justifying intervention on kind of economic or degrowth grounds i mean i'm not suggesting here that we're going to see kind of industrial espionage and, and polluting factories being destroyed but that's kind of in some ways a bit of the bit of the logic it probably also does fit in with a general um post-pandemic global uh and also ukraine war kind of global feeling of uh, pessimism and catastrophism so it has a sort of a starting mm. point in which is not a million miles away from 
from um from all of this so it does seem yeah it does seem to have some some synergies if you want to put it that way with um the global geopolitical situation at the moment yeah i, I mean you know the degrowth is global degrowth and i don't think anyone's making an argument for national degrowth um in fact no but the question of... is how does it you know in a particular kind of political right. context how does it end up expressing the interests of um different states and different actors within that context because you can't it would be naive to assume that it simply kind of applies consistently or evenly in every in every context well, I mean, but I guess that's precise. There's no obviously consistent um, degrowth argument then, you know, which intersects with the geopolitics because, um, you know, the U.S. might be happy to see uh, factories close in uh, in in Germany um, and production move to the U.S., but that doesn't mean that you know the U.S. is then degrowther. No, but <laughs> the point is no, no. But the point being, I suppose, how you know how far it is effectively, it becomes an ideology of geopolitical or or you know geoeconomic yeah, competition I, I, between I the U.S. and and Germany. I don't. I don't. So, uh, yeah, I don't see it. I mean, you know, I don't I don't see at, at the most it's like the thinnest uh, little kind of layer of icing on on a very, very large cake. So I don't think it's I don't think it's um, I don't know. I think I think there's I would go further, you know. So, I mean, it seems to me in as much as I would go further, um, you know, I think in as much as for a start, I think, you know, environmentalism in the West, you can't, you know, whatever has happened to environmentalism in the West in the last 30, 40 years, you can't reckon with it um or it has to be rather let me put it the other way it you have to reckon with it by putting it alongside deindustrialization in the western yeah. industrialization of east asia right so in that extent you know it's an ideological expression of that you know the two things are certainly intersect and tie together and in the contemporary context in as much as degrowth you know or a kind of degrowth adjacent ideologies make europe's leaders middle classes more relaxed or indifferent, um, or even a simply or merely, you know, simply oblivious to the deindustrialization that it seems to be, or that Europe is at risk of at the moment in the current context of the sanctions on Russia. That industry is, you know, industry is shuddering and what have you, as they simply can't afford the gas prices. You know, that seems to me to be an ideological, you know, that seems to me like the an ideological service effectively performed by this um by these set of ideas as part of um the US kind of reasserting its um economic primacy by whittling away the German export surplus, which has been, you know, thorn in the side of the US, you know, for many years, going back to the Obama administration, were complaining about it to Angela Merkel. Um, how it kind of uh, unbalanced the global economy that the Germans were exporting um, at such terrific rates. So you know, I mean, it seems to me you can't. It has to be. But but I mean, I think. But I, I think that, that only makes that, that only makes sense. You know, as you say, in making, um, for example, Western middle classes accept it, and that isn't even degrowth necessarily, right? It's just about environmentalism and reduced carbon emissions. Um, yeah, so, but then it is an ideological, you know, it's an it is having the idea. It's an ideology that's having effects um, in a particular political context, which is serving the interests of one side against another in what is, you know, an economic struggle. It's also worth saying that, you know, some people think ideologies. It's like it's something you say to convince other people. But like Gramsci, for example, would say, well, no, it's one of the functions is it binds together the people who are who are coming up with this so and i think to that extent it does 
seem to do a pretty effective job potentially at binding together Western elites. Um, they're definitely all on the same page on this. So it might not be, you know, maybe more or less successful in in getting Western working classes to kind of accept decreased living standards, but it certainly is is successful in like playing a social role, I would say, of, of, of bringing together yeah, it's um, a good point. Western... Well, I mean- a good a Gramscian point, Phil. We'll have to get that on record that you, you, you conceded that. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I totally accept the, the general Gramscian point, of course, um, in terms of you know uh, generating elite coherence. But I, I don't see you know U.S. elites are cohering around degrowth um, because it serves. No, that's not you know, what I said. That's not what I, I mean, said. I, just... Alex, right? I was asking whether it serves. You know, how does it factor into a particular political context? So it seems to me like, you know, the question for any set of ideas is if they're to be treated as a serious political idea. It's not to say that the U.S. is kind of funding degrowth think tanks or something like that, you know, um, but um, that this set of influential ideas, which are being presented as a solution to our ills, are also having effects which have to be reckoned with in a particular political contest, right? Hmm. So, you know, that seems to me, you know, worth. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still not convinced about that. It's a, that it that it's that important, but anyway. Um. So this, I mean, you know, so how far Europe is deindustrializing is an open question. So, you know, there is, um, and people, uh, listeners can, you know, go take a look because it's have it's a debate that's happening in a live debate that's happening in real time on Twitter between um, those pointing to indices of industrial resilience and those pointing to a collapse in demand for gas in Europe, which is, you know, either factories shutting down or scaling back their output, um, and also a collapse in um, in the purchasing of uh, the PMI index, which is um, kind of more forward-looking as to what manufacturers are buying in order to um, plan for the next round of production. And apparently all of those indices are collapsing, indicating that we're heading into a recession, but also that they're scaling back at such a staggering level because they simply don't have um energy in sufficient uh, cheap energy in sufficient quantities that they can produce at the level that they were previously expecting to so i mean this goes to this question of how far degrowth is effectively a um you know isn't like uh, the ideology um being proposed for the left but is already in effect de facto policy right um, either in the sense that it's being implemented by the Americans um, on Europe, by the fact that the energy-rich US is enforcing, has got Europe to enforce against Russia that are much more damaging to America's European economic competitors than it is to America itself. At the same time as um, the you know Biden administration is mounting enormous subsidies for re- drawing back, reshoring and uh, boosting American industry. So you could make the case degrowth yeah. is official policy, at least yeah. for one state within the in the West. Okay, so I'm I'm not immediately unsympathetic to this because, you know that that you could sort of say, well, you know, lockdowns were de facto degrowth, and this, you know, there may or may not have been sort of other reasons for this, but this was the the consequence. So you know, this is the official policy. But I mean, I guess my question is like, hasn't there always been an element of economic competition such that you you always want your competitors to degrow and you to to grow. So like it's I guess my sort of yeah. reservation is like, is this a new 
Is, is this a new tool no, but that America's be competition. using or is it a new phase in it? I mean, oh, what's... But you would strangle, so you'd strangle your competitors. Um, but how would it, you know, what would be the way in which it would be justified, right? So in as much as you have, you know, you could justify it as well. This is kind of, you know, um, the ruthless kind of market competition. You could justify it in terms of um, geopolitical self-interest, right? It's being justified in terms of the need to support Ukraine against Russian aggression. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it goes back to this question of, um, you know, there is, as we've spoken about, you know, I mean, we're not, you know, we're not hooking this on Kohei Saito's book or on Jason Hickel in particular, but there is an influential um, and, you know, widespread set of ideas about the um, problematic nature of industrial production that has been, you know, that's deeply entrenched, very familiar to people. And you have to think about how far that um, feeds into what's happening, right? I it's am, not something I am thinking is... about that. No, yeah, I guess... And I still don't buy it, honestly. Just... I, 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 like, I, I get what you're... I totally mm-hmm. understand what you're driving at, Phil, but I think it's ultimately quite tenuous. At most, it, it gets... And I think calling it, uh, uh, analyzing it under the term degrowth is probably definitely a step too far. If there is a resistance to production or um, a underestimation of the importance of industrial production, a complacency with uh, immaterial, um, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, immaterial production and so on. Yes, I think that um, probably is the case in the most kind of financialized economies. There's a sense that you can live off of uh, live off of fresh air. Um, you know that you can just spin money out of nothing through the creation of derivatives and so on, and that uh, industrial production is completely secondary or something that's just there that you get cheaply from China and you don't really need to think about. I think that to a certain extent, yeah, absolutely informs um, informs the way that it's that uh, even the kind of geopolitical conflicts are perceived. Um, you know, and and again, may make certain publics more amenable to uh, de-industrial, you know, to f- further deindustrialization. Um, but as a kind of, you know, weapon of elites, as a way of, I mean, I, I just, it's, for me, it's a, it's a couple of steps too far. Um, yeah. That, you I know, think that, you're, but you're, how about, how about this? I've, I've got, um, I think I see maybe what Phil's driving at here, just in, or maybe in this, we could put it this way, like, yeah, that degrowth could be the way that America potentially tries to uh, degrow its um, competitors without bringing in ideas of national interest or any kind of Trumpian like America first. We, you know, it, it, it there is something to it, which is like it, it, there is a geopolitical element, which like there are winners and losers of this or in the way it's been impl- being implemented. Um, and I guess this, you know, degrowth or this kind of wide environmental frame may be serves to hide that a little bit and to to kind of um to replace language of national interest and like economic sovereign states you know winning and losing with a sort of a more um easy to swallow ideological framing i don't know if that's what you were going going for but yeah there, there is i'll have to get back to you on this i'll have to think about it a bit more i mean i think there is you know the um am not suggesting the sense that there is a um you know, that it's concocted. Um, I'm making the case, rather, that any set of ideas um, in terms of how, what their political relevance is, right, beyond what they offer. So you can't just kind of think of like, you know, so what does this, 
what is the vision of um you know what is the legitimating principle what is the vision of social order um in this set of ideas you can't just say that you also have to think about how this actually plays out in the context of um you know in the context of a um of a particular political context and that is per, that is in you know that is uh, germane to assessing I, I, significant yeah. scope and meaning of any ideology but i think we've said i mean at least you know from my perspective i've said how it plays out which is to say that it reduces pressure on elites to deliver economic growth um and to a certain extent, it may be used, and this isn't about degrowth, but it's just about, um, you know, carbon mitigation strategies of um, trying to impose, you know, caps on Chinese growth, for example, by, you know, the, the, this is kind of old hat by now, right? But but effectively trying to limit Chinese growth because trying to limit Chinese emissions and so on. Yeah, that that absolutely. I just don't see, um, I mean, your, your kind of account of it, I just did, that's one which I didn't kind of buy. I thought that was um, a step too far. I'm not saying that kind of degrowth ideas, um, even, you know, especially broadly taken, don't have political consequences, um, unintended, indeed, political consequences. I think you're just saying that because you're a Brazilian podcaster who has no interest in industry. I have very much into, I, I actually, one of my own <laughs> regular complaints um, and criticism of the PT government is that it oversaw huge deindustrialization over the over the 2000s and 2010s. So no, very much to the contrary. <laughs> so I'm reminded, I mean, this chat reminds me of the, um, of that kind of, uh, I, I mean, let's say conspiracy theory for want of a better term, um, that the global, because I don't think it's, you know, it's purely conspiracy theory. Um, I think there is there is kind of a, a claim that is worth reckoning with, but the claim that, you know, the global lockdowns was socialism. So this, you know, you can find among the conspiratorial, but also in much more, you know, kind of widespread form, the idea that, um, you know, the kind of the global lockdowns was uh, because, you know, it deprived us of our civil liberties. It was inspired by communist China. Um, it was um, the fact that it led to shortages and the general kind of boost to state power and control that it was effectively totalitarian socialism. And then that would you know, overlap with the um, the kind of the infamous slogan of the WEF, you'll, um, you'll own nothing and be happy. Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying so, WEF like World Economic Forum? Does anybody say yes. that? I, I you said that earlier, yes, and I didn't really know what you meant. It, yeah, <laughs> that is people. That is what people say, Alex. You got to really? get with the times. Only yeah. if you're in on the inside. W, so, yeah, well, yeah. obviously, you support, if you support the World Economic Forum, then you won't say WEF. You'll pronounce it every time. But anyway, <laughs> so my point being, right? That um, so you know, there was this, there was this idea, right? The global lockdowns was was socialism, um. And it makes me what you know talking about this fact as to how far degrowth is a de facto official policy or not. It makes me um, you know wonder about the how does it relate to the left's enchantment with the idea. So if we're saying you know if you could make if you could make you know thinking you know thinking about say somebody on the right or push to the right as a result of their opposition to lockdowns um and they would you know i mean um and they would saying yes this is you know this is socialism this is chinese kind of communism totalitarian communism exported at the global level by these um sinister top down institutions that want to control my life 
and, you know, kind of maybe even expropriate my business with cheap money. It's, so that it's, is, yeah. you know, that is totalitarian socialism. So you could say there is a socialistic element to degrowth. Is the left support for degrowth um, expressive of something that is intrinsic to socialism, that is a genuine or legitimate part of socialism, or that speaks to something intrinsically totalitarian on the part of the left? I think it's like it's an annoying smart aleck Tories um, view of socialism, like oh, it will be yeah. very authoritarian and actually less will be produced. And there'll be all of these like we're all in it together um, kind of ways to get you to accept less. And it's like, unfortunately, that has a little bit of a ring of truth in in some senses that it's it is a that there is um a lot of people who call themselves socialists or, or are socialists or believe themselves to be socialists or whatever do do kind of bind all these things together i think the kind of um a certain approach to civil liberties a, 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 an approach to pr production which is primarily decreasing it and it's i think it's very it wouldn't be very recognizable to some of the you know now dead um earlier socialists like uh, engels's critique of malthus which I was having a look at um, earlier today. It's like it's very, um, you know, it's 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 much more pro science. What is impossible to science, and all these things which you know you can solve, and you just want to kind of produce more, and people can you know be be taking all different sorts of risks, and and you know probably polluting more, but then have a technological fix to to solve that, and owning more, and you know, but and better things as well. Anyway. I guess what I'm sort of saying is that, yeah, there is a there does seem to be a fit between some of these um, some of these ideas, um, unfortunately. And I think there would, you know, this is a um, it, it makes me think a little bit also of, of Joel Kotkin's argument in the coming of neo feudalism, where he says what is important today is this class alliance between the oligarchs and the and the clerisy. And if the left are the sort of clerisy, then the oligarchs are the 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 WEF or the World Economic Forum um, types who are sort of interested mostly um are most served by all of this anyway so i think it's um it does have yeah that annoying um ring of truth from people things that people have said before when they were wrong at the time and right now sort of thing yeah i i'm i don't know i i think there is a you know there's a, there is obviously a, a a line a consistent line insofar as you know you can focus on elements like the rationalization of production right the the non-dependence on the market to decide what gets produced and what doesn't so you know that there's a certainly you know if you take i, I suspect you know i haven't read the book but saito's ideas of you know kind of uh, of an ecological marxism or degrowth marxism um yeah there are lines of continuity between kind of marx and uh, a whole tradition of promethean or cornucopian socialism and these degrowth ideas even if in all other respects they're radically opposed um so i mean you know i i think that the to return i guess to phil's question about the kind of conspiracy theory that global lockdowns were socialism you know i think that's part of you know, ultimately, just the confusion and the scrambled ideological coordinates of the end of the end of history, where up is down, left is right, and you know things, the the terms on which lots of people denounce um, many of the ills of the world, and particularly the kind of um, 
you know, the political aspects in terms of increasing social control, economic stagnation, and so on, um, are on the only language through which people have to express that is old Cold Warrior language and calling that socialism. Um, of course, it's very much capitalism. Um, there is no uh, alternative extant today. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I'd agree with that. I think, I suppose I would, I would push it a bit further, though. I don't think it's kind of ideological confusion in the sense that it's simply kind of the defective you know, the people who observe this and are spooked by it, that it's simply a case of, uh, you know, their defective understanding um, or their lack of uh, historical awareness or being politically informed or whatever. And I think it's just that it is genuinely, um, you know, it's genuinely in the world itself. It's a disorganization that is not simply kind of, you know, um, an optical illusion, but something that is... Um, a genuine kind of uh, malady of our institutions and social structure and our politics as well. You know, so you have all of these kinds of, um, you have all of these kinds of global phenomena um, without any capacity to politically shape them through mass politics. And certainly not, you know, certainly not from, um, from the left or from the viewpoint of organized labor as a, um, as an actor. Okay, um, we're going to end this here, lest we metastasize and continue growing, um, become an infinite podcast. So um, we will, of course, continue to discuss these issues as we go forward. I would suggest listeners check out an article. Um, there's actually a couple of really good things linked in the show notes, uh, one of which is an article by Thomas Fatsy on the paradox of degrowth communism. Uh, Fatsy, in fact, is someone we're going to have on to talk about his new book with Toby Green about COVID, uh, which we'll do in the new year. Um, but that is it from us for now, and we will see you next week. Catch you later. Bye bye. <laughs>